Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Ben Smith has been a sought-after creative mind for over two decades. His brilliant marketing instinct and eloquence is balanced with a philosopher's soul. Ben has a moral compass that few possess but many respect. He grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, skateboarding and trying to find his lane in the world. Then he found himself in the corporate world in his 20s, all while becoming a father at the age of 23. After a long stint as an executive in the real estate world, Ben struck out on his own in 2016, starting his own firm, Kinsman Marketing Partners. In this intimate conversation, we explore his winding career journey, what it's like being a father to two girls and two boys, the places where he's still a work in progress, and more. Ben Smith is a rare human and worth everyone getting to know. Ben Smith, welcome to The Craft. Thank you, May. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, I'm happy I'm here too. Yeah, I was thinking about our meet cute, as they say in the movie business. And we met six and a half years ago when I joined Rennie in the marketing department and you were the VP of sales and marketing. I think that's the first time that we met. Is that it? Only six and a half years ago? Feels like longer. Yeah, because I was there for six years. And that's where yeah, we met. So that's yeah. where we met. I think what happened was I we didn't work together directly, mm-hmm. but I think I asked you for a meeting because I wanted to pick your brain. And I remember it being a an awesome conversation. I was I was asking about career stuff, and you told me um, some of the best advice that I think I've I've heard for myself in a very long time. And you just said. You know, your value is you being authentically you as a person, as a brand. So never forget that. And it's kind of stuck with me to this day. That is good advice. Yeah, I'm it is great sure advice. I borrowed that. <laughs> There's no way I came up with that myself. I mean, it seems pretty natural. So, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it was sage advice and I really do try to follow that. Good. Yeah. You grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. Did the hammer. Yeah. What was that like? How is how is it like growing up with mom and dad? What were they like? Um yeah, the hammer's a different different place. It's um you know, it's working man's town. And so it you know, looking back, it was pretty gritty uh in parts. Now, to be truthful, I like to connect to the gritty part of it. That's I I just feel like that's the cool part I want to connect with. But in reality, for all you listeners out there that know I'm full of crap, is I actually grew up in Ancaster, which is a suburb of Hamilton. So think of it like, uh, for those from BC, it's like, um, I don't know, like the White Rock versus Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd rather tell you I'm from Hamilton. So let's just stick <laughs> with that part of the story. Okay, we'll stick with that. But uh, yeah, I mean, Hamilton's Hamilton's great. It's As my mom will tell you today, it's up and coming. Um you know, there's lots of great stories growing up about Hamilton with, uh, we had the mob when I was a teenager. That was still a story. I don't know if it was really still going on full bore, but. Like an know, Italian mob? Yep. So there's yeah. lots of lots of Italians in Hamilton and as many Catholic schools as there are public schools. So you sort of had your friends from the Catholic schools and then you had your friends from the public schools and lots of Italian families and you'd play the Italians in soccer and 
you know, definitely I, I laugh when I moved here because I thought everyone's like, oh, you know, North Burnaby, that's where the Italians are. I'm like, that's, they're not Italians. <laughs> there's like four of them. <laughs> Whereas Hamilton, there's a lot of Italians. But Yeah. And what was mom like? What was dad like? Mom and dad. So mom's an interior designer and uh, dad's a chiropractor. So I kind of grew up with, um, I guess, a little bit of science, a little bit of creativity. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, mom, mom of four boys. And she probably never wanted any given that she was a interior designer and always wanted a, a girl to dress up and do creative things with. And she got four boys. And mm. uh, so I'd, I'd say with that said, I was probably the girl of the family or the closest thing to it. So <laughs> I learned how to sew and cook stuff. And you were crafty. Yes, apparently I was. So uh, I kind of resonated with those things and ended up in real estate development. So and always sort of related and enjoyed the interior design and architecture and creative sides of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were you like as a teenager? I mean, you were skateboarding and yeah, I was I was conflicted. Um, you know, I think I probably I didn't know it at the time until I kind of moved out west and I started seeing other things, which didn't happen until I was in my twenties. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I I realized that I just wasn't fitting into the world I was in in Hamilton. So um, I needed these other avenues, and I just didn't know they existed. Um, you know, I, I loved the mountains, which I didn't know was like, I, I was into skiing and stuff, but there wasn't really mountains in that zone. First time I saw like a real mountain, I think I was actually, I was 13. My parents took us to, um, Calgary when we did a trip to like Banff and Jasper. And I was like, this is, this is, yeah, what those I are majestic. Yeah. This is, this is what I'm into. And then I didn't really go back. I went to Jackson Hole when I was 16, but didn't really get back to the mountains until I was 19. Mm. I dropped out of university. But um, yeah, I think I was sort of just struggling to figure out how I fit into the world as a teenager. And, you know, having um, a very kind of working class experience. Um, You know, I grew up middle class for sure, but definitely within the Hamilton context. I just wasn't exposed to a lot of stuff until I, I... left um and uh yeah i think um i grew up like i said i grew up in this family of four boys and so i was trying to figure out where i fit like the whole competitive jockey thing like i didn't do so well in that Mm -hmm. i um it actually made me quite uncomfortable and so i was a good athlete though so i'd start playing sports but then i don't know there's something about it and i always end up quitting and um you know, I think that's why those individual sports kind of fit better with who I was. Mm. Um, so that was kind of themes, I guess you could say. But I had, you know, I had a good group of friends and um, tight crew and yeah, it was good. And then did you move to Toronto after that? So you left Hamilton, went to the big city. And is that where you started to get into? No, not at all, marketing? actually. Um, I, how did all that go? I, um trying to think I went to university and I was always very practical too right so I went to university and I really hated school so I had this idea that I was going to just try to get through it as fast as I could for at least amount of money and um, so I stayed at home I went to Mac to McMaster which is in Hamilton um, and I hated my first year I took business and I just hated all of it and it was my own bad choices right I should have tried to go away and do something but I just had it in my head I'm just going to pound through this and then when it's done it's done 
And so I lasted a year and then I was like, this sucks. And so I dropped out and moved to Fernie, BC um, with a buddy to just do a season skiing. And so that's when I was like, whoa, this is like, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And then um, I chased a girl to Switzerland or to uh, Austria. And so partway through, I had sort of met this girl in the summer in the Muskokas uh, in cottage country. And uh, we became really good friends and we weren't dating or anything. And um, but then we kept staying in touch. And then when I was in Fernie, we kept talking and she's like, hey, why don't you come here? And so I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I bought a 1972 Westphalia from the local drug dealer and uh, drove it across the country with some buddies and barely made it across and, uh, you know, got home. I think I bought it for 2,500 bucks and sold it for 2,800 bucks because it was a BC Volkswagen. And, uh, and then I took that money and bought a plane ticket and I went to Austria. And then, uh, the girl and I ended up dating when I got there. And then, um, Long story longer, I married her and we have four kids. Um, but that's shout out of, to Julie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that kind of, I guess, from that experience, we went to Austria. I kind of we hung out there, came back, worked in the Muskokas again, and I was like, okay, I guess I got to go back to school. And so I was like, how do I graduate as fast as possible? And I was kind of on the fast track. Um, you know, the the girl was four and a half years older than I am, so she was maybe ready to get married. And I was like, okay, I'm all about that. So, um, yeah, I kind of fast track university, we got married and then we moved to Switzerland and we started traveling and, um, kind of the shock of that was very quickly after moving to Switzerland, we got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so then we came back and it was like, okay, now I got to get a job and care for a kid. And that's you were 21, how, right? I was 20, 21 when I got married. Uh, my oldest daughter journey, uh, 23 when I had her 23. So yeah, came back to Ontario to have the baby and uh, had journey in Ontario and uh, started like working a corporate job. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I commuted a bit from Hamilton to Toronto and I just hated my life. I was like, this is the worst ever. You were at an agency, right? Yeah, it was one of News Corporation's companies mm -hmm. and it was in marketing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, growing up as a teenager, I always worked at skateboard shops and ski shops and snowboard shops. And um, so I kind of knew retail and somehow I found a way through somebody I knew that there was this retail job and I was able to like create a resume that made it look like I knew what I was talking about related to retail marketing. But truth be told, I really had no idea. Mm. And so I got this job, did it for a year. And uh, in that time, yeah, I just realized I do not want to commute. And we moved to Oakville, which is sort of closer to Toronto, um, but still brutal commute, had a baby. Um, and then, um, on the work front, I met a guy who, uh, was kind of a mentor and he started a software company. And so I went to work for him for a year and there's a whole bunch of stuff that went on in that time. Um, our oldest daughter ended up having a disability and having, um, a surgery in the first six months. Um, my brother died who was 16 at the time. Um, nine 11 hit and it was just like, that's a lot. Wham, wham, wham. So then, um, how did you manage during that time of everything piling on top of one another? Um, I, I would not well, um, <laughs> I think I did what I tend to do is just sort of put my head down and plowed through it. And we just sort of held our breath and kept going. And my wife, Julie, uh, she's from BC. And so at the, in the software scenario, the plan was to move to California and, 
we're sort of taking steps to do that. And then when 9-11 hit and uh, basically my brother died, we had our second child. Oh, here, sorry, let me back up. So Journey was born in April, had her first brain surgery in October. Um, no, yes. Uh, my next daughter was born in August. 9-11 happened that September. And then that basically the software thing, we couldn't get into the States at the time. It was a big mess. And so Julia's like, well, I don't care where we're going, but we're not staying here. We're not mm -hmm. staying in Ontario. And so literally we picked a date and I talked to a buddy. I'm like, hey, we're moving out west. And do you want to come with me, drive, help drive the van? And we drove all of our stuff across the country. I got here like mid-October and Julie had a flight with the girls like November 3rd or something. So I had two weeks to find a place to live, move everything in. Wow. And, and that was the start. Brand new chapter. Totally on the West fresh. Coast. We didn't know very many people here. Julie mm -hmm. had some friends. She went to university here. So she still had some friends out here. But all of our family, both sides had moved back. Um, so everyone was in Ontario and I mean, in hindsight, it's a crazy idea. Like, I, I can't even imagine. But, you know, we were young and we're like, we're just doing it, right? Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. Go. Yeah, and so that was 2001 at the mm -hmm. time in BC. It was, um, I think it was, if I remember right, the market was just starting to come back. We'd sort of had some downtime, I think, or you guys had had downtime in, in BC. And the market was just starting to come and trying to find a job was tough. It took me about eight months um, and then I, I kind of got into um, an ad agency. And then from that, I kind of found real estate. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about real estate, um, but had, I'd been doing marketing. And this agency ended up doing a lot of real estate. And so then all of a sudden, I was in real estate. And that was when you ended up at Polygon. Yeah. So I was two years at the ad agency and then uh, literally was doing some business development research and came across Polygon and they had, uh, well, I knew who they were, but on it was on their website and they had a, um, a posting for a marketing person. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, one of those late night things I put in my resume, I thought, and it, the way they worded the, the posting was really big. So I didn't really know what they wanted, um, but I put in a resume anyhow. And strangely enough, I woke up in the morning and I got a phone call from them and they're like, hey, do you want to, can you come in? And so I was like, okay. So I went in and had an interview and I was still like not entirely sure what they wanted. So I wrote a job description and I said, Hey, look, like if this is what you want, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, that's cool. We'll go our separate ways. And so I remember um, they called me back and they said, you know, really appreciate it. And yeah, we're looking for something else. And right. so I was like, okay, no problem. And kind of went on my merry way. And then I think it was like two days later, or I don't know. I can't remember the timing. Um, the president called me and he said, hey, can we have breakfast this week? And so I was like, okay. And so I showed up and he had, it was at um, the Opus Hotel. In the, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. That, that restaurant changed hands a few it, times. Yeah, so me. many times. Yeah, but it used to be a great, in the early 2000s, it was a great restaurant spot. So we met there and he had my job description. And it was printed out and it was highlighted. And he just started going through it line by line and I must have looked confused because he's like, you know, you're probably wondering why you're here. And he said, well, our VP of marketing just quit. And um, do you want the job? Wow. And I was like, okay, yeah. And so they checked my references and I got the job and started a long, long career in real estate. So, right. 
I remember you once saying that, um, just to go back to marketing in general, mm-hmm. that you're either a marketer or you're not. So what what do you mean by that? Do you think that to be a really great marketer, it's an inherent skill? Yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, there's different sides of marketing. Um, you know, some people I know are very good at just managing projects and they can manage budgets and schedules and that's probably not me. Um, but I think what I understand and, um, you know, I'll backtrack, I told you kind of fast forwarded through it quickly, but, um, you know, my university career, I did a year of business, dropped out. And then when I went back, I did the, my entire degree in a year, a year and a half. So total, I was there two and a half years. And the way I did it was when I went back, I had kind of this baseline of business. Um, but I just decided the only way I'm getting through this is if I take what I want to take. And because I wanted to get through it fast, I had to load it up. And so I knew that um, I really needed to like what I was taking or I'd be, I couldn't do it. And so most of those courses was a real mix. The, the funny little side story for all you people going to university and paying all this money is that, um, you know, in that doing a year of business and then a year of whatever I wanted, at the end of that, I had six months left to get to basically I had half a semester or a semester um, to finish. And I could have graduated with three different degrees. So the difference between three different degrees, all very different. I think one was sociology, one was economics. And then what I ended up getting, funnily enough, was religious studies. Mm. But two to- like th- or three totally different kind of scenarios differentiated by a semester. Like, it's kind of a joke. But anyhow, so again, long story longer, I didn't take a single marketing course in my whole university career. Um, but if you even look at, like, how does that relate? I understood how people think. And so... You know, why did I have a religious studies degree? Because I was taking courses like I took Buddhism and I took Christianity. And my favorite course was cults, which was awesome. <laughs> um, that course was massive, by the way. It was like 400 people in the room. And they just bring in all these cool cults and they would try to, like, tell us their story. Meanwhile, they're, like, trying to convince us to join them. But <laughs> it was awesome. And you can imagine, like, a hall full of teenagers. And we're like, yeah. And the Holy Christians came in and they're singing and we're singing with them. Super fun. But anyhow. Um, how that relates to what I do for a living is I, I just get how people think and mm. I get, um, you know, what they value. And that's all really marketing is. It's trying to figure out um, who is it that you're trying to talk to and how do you talk to them in a way that they really care, right? And, you know, as you know, in marketing, you, you can th- talk to them in a way that's factual but that's not really going to impact their decision as much as if you talk to them in a way that moves them, you know, people make their decisions based on they've already decided before they tell you why. Usually when they tell you why, they're just just justifying what they already think in their heart. They Mm. know what they're going to do. Right. You know, we hear these stories all the time. People buy a new house and they're like, I just walked in and I knew it was the one. Right. Right. There's no facts. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not into music, but somebody who's into music, I walked into the store and it was like, that was the guitar I had to have. Like it wasn't their brain. There's something in them that stirred them. And so I think when I say, you know, you just kind of know how to do that or you don't, like that's what I mean. You either know that piece or you don't. Mm. And you can learn the tactics. Like you can learn 
how to do a mail walk. I just aged myself. Do people do that anymore? How to, how to, I think, how to send I out think a, it still does happen in does? certain industries. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, or nowadays, like how to do, uh, you know, an, uh, analytics or uh, <laughs> SEM, as they say. Um, but that's like just basic head knowledge. But to be a really great marketer and the ones that I really respected over the years, they just seem to understand how to move people. Mm. Mm-hmm. And now you are the founder slash president of your own marketing consulting agency. Um, and you still work in the industry. Um, when you're going through the process of, yes, that's a project or client that I want to work with. Is there some sort of, is there a framework that you work off of? Are there values that you look for in the, in the other client? And the reason I'm asking is because I've always considered you as, as someone with this unwavering moral compass and strength of character. Um, I know that you're not going to be the type of person that will just be like, yep, I'm going to work with you and work with you. Like, I feel like you will pick a client that feels aligned. So how do you choose who and what you take on? Um, by how many bills I have that month. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it's nice. Sometimes I have the luxury of being able to choose. Mm. Um, But I'd say the the first and foremost is, um, can I help you? And I think a lot of people, and I don't know how to do this, unfortunately, or fortunately, my superpower, and, and I say things are both are both and, right? So your your superpower is usually also your biggest weakness. And so mine is that I tend to be really passionate about things. And so when I get involved in something, I, I care about what I'm doing. And the downside of that is I care about what I'm doing. So if you're completely frustrating to me and I just can't help you, I can't do it. it. Like, you know, people are like, just take their money and just keep doing it. And I can't, I don't know, I've tried. But um, so first and foremost, I need to feel like I can actually help. And if I can't, then I'll tell you, I'm like, I can't help you. Um, and funny enough, as a, you know, I've been consulting for four years. And um, that's one of the things I've learned. People always say, like, you know, how do you how do you do it? Or how do you keep getting clients? And da, 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 da. I think one of the ways is, you know, you earn their trust by being honest with them. And, you know, there's been lots of times when I've said, I can't help you anymore. Like, this is all, this is all I can do. And I go, oh, thank you. You know, thanks mm-hmm. for saying that. Thanks for not just taking our money. Right. And sometimes they'll argue with you, no, 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 we really need your help. And then it sort of gets you on a conversation about, okay, well, how? Because right now I'm not seeing it. So what do you need from me? Like, what do you think you need from me? Mm. And ha- help me help you kind of thing. Um, other times it's like, yeah, you know what? You don't need me. You should go work with this person. And I've done that before too. And I think when you create that trust, um, people refer you. Right. Yeah. As simple as that. It's really that simple. Mm -hmm. Um, Honesty and integrity. Yeah. In your work. Yeah. And I think, you know, we spend an awful lot of time. um, I can be accused of being a workaholic for sure at times. So we spend an awful lot of time with this work thing. And so, you know, if you really hate working on the things you're working on or with the people you do, then it's not that fun. And, you know, there's times when you have to do that, right? I'd say this pandemic has not been the most fun in the world, but, you know, we've had to sort of put our heads down and keep our jobs and mm-hmm. keep trying to do what we can to move things forward. And that's part of it. But, you know, I think where you can, you try to work with people that you want to work with and mm-hmm. do work that you're enjoying working on. Yeah, and can be proud of. Yeah, totally. 
And speaking of the pandemic, what what has that been like for you on a on a personal level? Yeah, it's I don't know. Like everybody else, I keep using the word. It's just weird, right? Like, I think uh, I can be accused of being an introvert, which definitely um, I like to recharge on my own. So at first, I was like, "This is the best ever." Like, I just home by myself. I got an excuse not to see anybody. Like, I can work from home in my pajamas and nobody cares. Like, so I'd say for the first six months, I was like on fire happy. Like, this is amazing. So good. Um, But it has been hard. And I've noticed like it's been hard on the friend side because I'm a bad friend right now. Like, it's hard for me to get the effort up to to be a better friend. Um, You know, it's pretty easy to be like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Let's go for a drink. And right now, you like you can't really do that, especially if you've been a bad friend, you haven't seen that person for six months and now they're out of your cohort, right? Right. So um, yeah, I, I would say I'm trying to navigate it and figure it out and figure out how do I how do I challenge myself to maybe not do what my natural habit is, which is just to cocoon, mm. um, you know, which was again, easy to do when we thought it was gonna be over in three months. And now that we're going on, what do they say? I think they said, um, today or yesterday was like the one year anniversary of all of this, the first case or something in Canada. Yeah. So yeah. Right. So, that sounds about right with timing. Yeah. So we're like, we're, we're a year in and I know it feels like maybe we're halfway. I know. Well, mid-March will be a year since shutdown and that's not too far away. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's been a trying time. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, as I said, I got, I got four kids, um, who now have, grown up since the start of this story um so they're 20 and 19 and 16 and 14 and they're trying to find their way through this and a couple of them are in high school which um you know props to bonnie henry i guess or whoever made those decisions to try and keep kids in school i know a lot of parents were upset about it but i would say that for my boys who are in high school like it's their only social life right now mm-hmm. so it's been a nice um nice thing for them to have friends yeah. And for the girls who are in university, both of them, um, they're doing it virtually and, you know, they're lonely. Mm-hmm. And so trying to navigate through that. And uh, we we're seeing earlier before we started recording that um, you're trying to juggle the cohorts too, right? So they got different cohorts because, you know, they're the, the girls uh, don't live in the same house as us right. anymore. So even though they're doing school virtually, we're trying to give them a bit of an experience away. But then when they want to come home because they're lonely, like, how does that all work? And mm-hmm. Boyfriends. and Yeah, and, and the youth may not take it as seriously either. Or are they? Yeah. I mean, you have teenagers and young adults, so. I would tell you that for the most part, um, I think kids are taking it pretty serious. Okay. I mean, I think for sure there's people out partying and doing that stuff, but... Um, you know, in my kids and in, uh, and maybe they don't take it as serious as we do or they or maybe they don't aren't as stringent as we are maybe, but I'd say they're taking it pretty seriously. Okay. Well, that's um, good to know. And uh, maybe more so like, I think if you ask them, maybe making this up, but I think like a lot of us, they're not worried about getting it themselves. They're worried about giving it to somebody, right? Like I think mm. that message has been passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, that's definitely an important one. Um, I wanted to touch on, well, you were talking about your your kids and um, your kids are all amazing. I've, I've met them. I've spent, you know, some time with them and they're all they're they're 
own amazing individual personalities. Um, What, you know, in terms of being um, a father, like what has been the most fulfilling for you in, in these last two decades of, of fatherhood and, and also having to juggle um, journeys, you know, um, chronic health condition and, and how all that has played out over the years. Yeah. Um, where do I begin? Um, so much has been rewarding. I think, um, you know, first and foremost, they've got an amazing mom and we were extremely fortunate that um, not only was she able to, but she wanted to be at home with them. Um, and I think, you know, maybe one day the uh, maybe they realize it now, but I think they'll see what an amazing gift that's been to have, um, you know, a mom who, like, she's a great mom. Like, she just really is good at it. And so in that, all my kids have been able to, as you say, develop their own ways of being. And they've been so supported um, in being themselves and getting to explore um, the different sides of them. You know, I think um, no, n- nothing against my parents at all. But as I mentioned, growing up in a family of boys, there's sort of this assumption that, well, boys all do. Boys are boys. Boys will be boys, right? Like they fight and they do these things and they play sports. And that's not true. Like now we're all older and we're all extremely different. Um, and so my kids have had the benefit of being able to foster those differences. So they are extremely different. And um you know, I give my wife credit for that because I wasn't around that much, to be honest. Like, I was working a lot. So, um, you know, I think watching them find their path is so rewarding for me to see mm-hmm. that. Um, the other thing I think we did in our house was we were very strict. Uh, we were very strict in general, but one thing we were strict on in particular was that they weren't allowed to hate each other. So I think some families especially when you've got lots of kids, you can imagine there's, there's times where there's some tension, right? And, you know, you hear about like, oh, me and my sister didn't get along, we didn't like each other, that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, were, we allowed our kids to be angry, but we were very strict about they're your blood. And so you need to learn to respect their differences and mm-hmm. you guys need to love each other. Like it's, it's a non-negotiable. Mm. So did you encourage them to, if there was, you know, a fight or some anger, did you encourage them to communicate with each other? Totally. That? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that means they got to take some time and be, you know, have some space. And that's difficult when you got four kids and they share rooms so that, you know, I've got two girls, two boys in that order. And so they, the girls shared a room, the boys shared a room. And so, yeah, there's definitely times where they needed their space and that kind of stuff, but it wasn't we always made them come back to it. And, you know, my wife, especially she put in the time and for those parents out there, like it's exhausting. And most of the time you don't follow through. It's because you're tired. Right. And it's because you're just like you yourself don't want to deal with it. And my wife just put so much time and effort into all of it. Like if anything, I'd be like, I just can't deal with this. I'm so tired. And and she wouldn't do that. She'd be like, okay, well, then I'm dealing with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like they, so they've worked through stuff and they haven't always gotten along, but they, that's super rewarding now to see they've got each other's backs and they, yeah, you know, like they're, the, my girls, especially they're living in different spots right now, but they'll like go over to each other's places and they talk and, you know, they're extremely different. And same mm-hmm. with the boys, the boys are extremely different, but yet they they cheer for each other and 
you can tell that they enjoy each other's company. I think so. The they're probably part. listening to yeah. this and they're probably laughing like, <laughs> you're so clueless. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably. I mean, it's only been a few times I've, I've you know, been in their presence. But um, I do remember, remember being in Tofino and just watching your family's interaction and, and thinking that it was just really loving. Yeah, I think, um, you know, they're great kids. They're, they're really empathetic. And I think we force them to be empathetic with each other, which then helps them to have to practice it on the daily to mm -hmm. learn to be empathetic to others. Um, and so, you know, that's rewarding too, where I learned so much from my kids. Like I'll get angry and, you know, I'm from I'm from Hamilton, right, or Ontario. So I've got that Ontario road rage and they'll be like, dad, calm down. It's okay. Like, mm. <laughs> don't be so mad. That person, maybe that person's had a hard day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh. Right, right. But um, yeah, I mean, so much, um, so much reward within all of it for mm -hmm. sure. I'm wondering I, now. I'm going way, way back, back to you know growing up with um, there were four boys, right, yep. in total. Yeah. Um, was it an, it an environment where um, you felt growing up that you were able to um, to talk about your feelings no. or share your feelings? No. This is something that you've had to journey through, and oh, totally. Yeah. And you know, my wife's probably laughing listening to this, going, "You still don't share your feelings." <laughs> Um, yeah, no. And it, it, again, it's nothing against um, the family I grew up in. It's just I think it was also the way it was, like, mm. especially if you're boys, like there's so many just even phrases that we all say that, like, I'll say it again, the boys will be boys. Like there's stereotypes that this is this is how boys families works and this is how how it works. Right. And so definitely you weren't you know, you don't share your feelings, you get beat up for that. And, mm. you know, I don't know, I think it was probably a time of life, plus, you know, living in that context, sort of suburban southern Ontario, and, you know, uh, you, you didn't do that. And I think our kids are luckier now from that standpoint, where empathy is part of the school, and it's part of what you do. I mean, I think definitely I'm hearing bullying still exists for sure in schools, and it's worse in some places than others. But my kids were pretty um, lucky that way. And, uh, in Whistler, they went to a Waldorf school, which is quite small and definitely, um, taught all of those things. And, you know, they hung around kids who generally were in families that also ascribe to the same kind of mm. ideals. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, this is kind of this, before we started recording it, there was this random pathway that I mentioned that I wanted oh, to, okay. to take with you. And this is kind of, um, where I'm going with the the feelings thing. Um, as, uh, you know, most people in my life know, I have um, uh, taken my sound therapy certification and I just got certified just before New Year's. So yeah. it's very exciting. Um, but one of our teachers uh, who was teaching us voicing, she was teaching us how to do ecstatic dance and free movement. And this is kind of like this long, kind of a long ex explanation into the question. But, um, and the ecstatic dance and the free movement, um, this is like just uncontrolled movement, like move in the way that your body wants to move. And this was to help our bodies open up so that our voices could be really powerful as we're working with our clients and whatever emotions that they needed to work through. And I found it really, really liberating. So for the last six weeks, every single morning, I've been doing ecstatic dance in front of the mirror and free movement. And it doesn't look pretty um all the time but what it Sometimes has it does though 
but sometimes it does. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, wow, I'm a goddess. (laughs) Um, But what it has really done is help me connect my body and my feelings and my emotions. So I'm feeling more of my feelings now than, than ever. And I'm feeling much more in my feminine energy. And recent realization was, wow, for the last 10 to 15 years of my life being in the corporate world, let's, let's just say, I have been operating so much in my masculine Mm. in terms of like achieving and moving forward and striving. And it wasn't until I stepped back and started doing these things where I'm finding this balance now between those masculine and, and feminine energies. So yeah, so my question was going to be to you, do you do you feel like you are more of a masculine energy um, or do you feel like you're more balanced? Like, are you able to now at this point in your life really deeply feel your feelings and express them? Oh, no, I'm still as disconnected mm. as ever. Um, <laughs> I say that jokingly, but it's true. I mean, I think I, you know, feelings are tough and uh, the there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there. Right. So, you know, depth of feeling like that, that's, that's a big topic. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say I definitely am aware of it and I definitely see what you're saying. Like the corporate world doesn't want you to feel. And sometimes you, you have to not feel to get through it, which is really challenging. Um, and I'd say, um, I've gone through waves of that. So as you know, in between going out on my own and working at Rennie, I took a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And I would say that was amazing. And every day I'm like, how do I get back to that? How do I retire? Um, But one of the reasons why it was amazing is because there was so much I was holding in to just do my job, right? And just to get through and keep grinding and all those things you said, like you're in an ecosystem that is striving. And, um, you know, I'm personally a driven person. Um, and I'm have I'm pretty aspirational and um, have high expectations. So those can be really challenging on a person if you're in an ecosystem that's like constantly promoting that. Um, and I'm not saying it's entirely negative. There's a lot of positives that come from that. But then again, it's the both ends. So, you know, after years and years of doing that, you can get yourself pretty disconnected. And I'm very guilty of that. Um, I'd say so that year was awesome. And it was really great. And then when I got back into working on my own, um, I was tr- I was pretty good at balancing it, um, especially in the first year. But I was probably working like, I don't know, 20 hours a week or something. So it was a lot easier to do. Mm-hmm. And I find, again, I'm, it's harder now. And I'm, I'm having to come back to it because I realize how disconnected I've gotten again. And, you know, how do we get there? Well, you know, we just start grinding again, right? Like things like pandemics or bills and um, the last two years in real estate, uh, maybe for your listeners, um, resale has been quite good. But in what I do, which is working with condo developers, the the industry kind of shut off or the, the market sort of shut off in 2019 before the, the, the pandemic. And that has been hard through 2020 as well. So I found that in grinding again, just to keep up and doing this season of life, you know, you get disconnected from those feelings again. Mm. And so definitely it's something that I've become more aware of again. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe too late, but um, having to come back to that. So right. I definitely hear what you're saying. Yeah. Do you have anything that you do to bring yourself back? Um, no. <laughs> Still work. It's a work in progress. Yeah, I think the, yeah. you know, what do I do? I think uh, it's just trying to get aware. So mm. trying to watch when, like, watch habits, 
you know, the, I think the, the easy sign is what are the things you're doing to numb? And I think Gabor Mate's, uh, if you've read any of his books, he's awesome. And, you know, he talks a lot about sort of the downtown east side and the difference between sort of him and the guy on the downtown east side is so little. And he tells stories about um, how he's addicted to opera and says it's all just addiction, right? Like what's the difference between my opera addiction and, you know, an opioid addiction other than that the culture of the world accepts that it's okay, um, that I'm a doctor and I listen to opera. Mm. And so I think it's similar with us, right? Like I, I don't think I'm addicted to anything, but there's definitely, you know, sometimes I'll, I may not get drunk, but I'll have several drinks and the purpose is just to numb out at the end of the day. Or I'll sit and binge watch TV or Netflix or Instagram. And, you know, again, it's like not hurting anybody. But in reality, like, I'm, yeah, I'm fully numbing it out, out to it, right? So trying to just first step for me is usually getting aware of that and, you know, then trying to back it off. Like, how mm. what's, what's really going on here? Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing I'd say is, and I'm not great at this, um, but you got to get back into nature. And uh, for me, that's, you know, usually going up the mountain snowboarding or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm an old fart, but I still in the summer like to try to roll around the skate park and it's just getting into air, right? And oh, absolutely. Grounding yourself. And yeah, the other day I um, took a break from working at home. I went into Pacific Spirit Park and I was following a trail and I just felt this pull to cut right into the forest and like I just... And I did. I went off the uh, off the trail and I went into the forest and like made my way through. And I stood there in the middle of the trees where I couldn't hear anyone on the trail for 20 minutes. And it was it was amazing. I don't know. I, I could just feel I could I could hear the forest. I could hear myself as well. And um, I just felt healthier just physically but also mentally and spiritually I'm and trying, I believe it I think that forest baths and forest just sits like that totally hopefully if you live near a forest and have the access just do it yeah I think you know we get we think that life is life and you know if you think of how this whole corporate world that we live in it hasn't existed like this forever like mm -hmm. it's a very small part of life that this kind of way of doing things have existed mm -hmm. and so we miss so much by not being forced into nature like maybe um, we would have a few hundred years ago or something like that right mm -hmm. and we we've got it all figured out we've got um, nice warm or cool in the summer apartments and houses and we've got schedules and we have all these things and sometimes that um, that pull into the woods um, you need to create space for because you got a schedule to meet or you got this or that or you got these things that stop you from doing it mm -hmm. and it's we have to remember that these things that stop us from doing it aren't actually normal mm -hmm. right it's they're they're new cultures that we've created in the last hundred years and our our bodies don't necessarily recognize that yeah actually you saying that um reminds me of something my traditional chinese medicine doctor said because you know at uh when i started seeing him i was i was still working in real estate and um you know he kept on telling me that the way that we live with all these condos he he was saying that it's very unnatural for our bodies it's it's not 
we're not meant to be in these confined boxes. Um, and, you know, from his point of view, it cuts off our energy, our life energy, our life force and our, our chi. So, yeah, it was, it was always very fascinating because um, whenever I would go to see him, at one point it was is weekly, and, you know, he, he checks your, your pulse and he looks at your tongue. And, um, you know, he was always encouraging me to get out of the rat race. And he was saying that it was it was it was doing something to my body. Yeah, I, I believe it a hundred percent. And I, you know, it's an. I also am conscious of the fact that it's a pretty privileged thing for us to say mm. um, to think that we can get out because there's a lot of people that yeah, you got to pay your bills. Like it's it's for this sure. challenge, right? Of how do we how do we make time for it? How do we change the way we do things? Um, which I can tell you, like, what I haven't figured out is. I had to fully stop and be on sabbatical to do it. And what I haven't figured out coming out of sabbatical is the balance of how do I be in it and start to create good habits around that balance, mm. um, which is really difficult for me to do because mm-hmm. um, I just it's easy for me to switch into just driven and, you know, if there's work to be done, let's do it like and to try to shut that off without fully shutting it off. Like mm. I, I seem to be all or nothing. It's real challenge for me to to do like both mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. i'm just conscious of the time here so i have two more questions for yeah, you um the first question that i have is what's the one thing that you want to do for yourself over the next year oh man um that's a good question i i, I you know, with, we don't have a lot of time left, so I, I won't give it a lot of thought. Uh, um, so I'll give you the first thought that came to my head, which is um, one of the things I started doing right away. Actually, somebody we both know, um, I call her my super coach, Karen. Mm. And so um, Karen's an executive coach. Uh, I think she's in San Diego. San Diego. I'm not she even, is. Yeah, I'm not sure where anyone is anymore. <laughs> um, and she's been amazing, and she's been such a helpful tool for me. So I've reengaged with her, and I'm really trying to – uh, I've been aware that I am disconnected and I have been working so hard the last couple of years and just surviving that I'm trying to break myself out of that. Mm. And one of the big things that I'm, I'm working on is, um, uh, I wouldn't say I'm an angry person, but anger in particular. And so part of that thing I was saying earlier about that both and with me where I get really passionate, I'd say one of the things is I can hang on to what you might call anger and uh, so I'm just trying to figure out how that works, mm. right? Um, like, how do I how do I still give up my all and keep all the passion that's so great and that I think makes me really good at what I do, without also hanging on to that same reverse effect, which is the frustration and again I call it anger. Anger is maybe not the right word, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's something that I'm trying to do this year. Okay, and have have you been able to to do that and feel lighter? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a working progress, but a big plug for Karen. She's amazing. Even like the first few things starting to look at. I, I now I'll give the group one little taste is, um, you know, she's really helped me see that anger is awesome. Like anger is just an alarm. And that it's when you hang on to the alarm, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's kind of like if you woke up in the morning and your alarm's going off and you didn't turn it off, you just put it in your pocket and you carry it around all day. Mm. <laughs> and that's what we do yeah. with anger. Whereas we have to start seeing, you no, know, anger's telling you that something's wrong. And so you have to acknowledge the alarm clock, 
you know, hit the snooze button on it and then ask yourself, like, what needs to change? Like, mm. why is this coming up? What, why is the alarm sounding? And just that little simple thing has mm -hmm. been so good and caused this, you know, kind of digging into a whole bunch of other layers. But Right, right. Wow, we must be on the same wavelength. I was listening to a podcast earlier and um, it was talking about uh, emotions that we may consider, quote unquote, bad, like anger or anxiety. Um, but the podcast was saying the same thing or the, the guests um, on the podcast were discussing the same thing, that these emotions aren't bad. They are alarm bells Yeah. for what needs to change. Yeah, I think, you know, you just made me think of another thing. My friend Stace says, um, you know, we have this thing where we think we can't be happy and sad. Like we think they're opposites. Mm. Um, and and um, there's a lot of emotions like that, right? But why can't we? Why can't we have carry sadness and be happy, mm -hmm. right? Like why can't we laugh? Like at a funeral, like it's that idea, right? Mm. And so, but we want to categorize and like segment and then do all these kind of things. Because mm -hmm, it's just easier. Yeah. And we do it that way. sometimes we just have to let them know. It's just, oh, I see you. Yeah, I see you happiness. I see you anger. Mm. I see you whatever. Mm. Final question. All right. Make it a good one. <laughs> Don't screw it up. No, I won't. Um, with the work that you do, what it is? what is it that you want to leave behind in this world? Oh, man, these are hard questions. Um, I don't know if I have anything in particular. Um, yeah, And it doesn't have to be work-related. It's just with I, your life. Yeah, what I don't, do you I don't know. If, uh, maybe I'll answer it this way. I don't think I, I'm driven that way. Mm. Um, I don't actually like the word legacy. It kind of makes me feel gross when people talk about their legacy. It feels very egocentric. Um I just think maybe this, you didn't, if you meant to do this, you're freaking brilliant. But um, I'm going to bring it back to the very first thing you asked me, which is you said I told you just to be you. And so I think that I really do believe that we're all put here with certain experiences and families and sociology and all these things wrapped in that we didn't control any of that stuff. And that's all wired us to do certain things. And we may or not may not even know what those are. And it could be as simple as one time we helped that one guy who ended up becoming um, some important figure in the world that solved world hunger or something. I don't know. And it all started because you just helped him once. Mm -hmm. Like it could be that simple. Um, but the legacy I want to leave, hating that word legacy, is just to try to be me and try to not be anything but me. And I really do believe that that's what we're supposed to do. And if we do anything else, then we're, we're robbing the world of who we are and what we were meant to be here for. And when I, that whole like what I was meant to be here for, it's, I don't ever have to even know what that is. Right. It's not trying to figure out what that is. It's just trying to do it. So just try to uninhibit yourself from all these trappings of shoulds and all these things that we're told to do and just try to be ourselves mm -hmm. and trust that if we all did that, then hopefully some creator or something has it figured out to know how it all fits together, even if we don't. And, you know, when I said that to you about marketing, I think that's why I say I get marketing. I think that's all we do with brands and with companies 
we just say, what are, what were they supposed to be? What is this company meant to be? There's a bunch of experiences, there's time, there's people involved. When you put all those things together, what are they meant to be? And I think when companies mess up is when somebody comes in, usually a consultant, <laughs> and says, you know, this is what the customer wants. That's what you should be. Let's build our brand around that. And generally, when I go into companies and do this work, I just say, you know what, I'm going to save you a lot of money. Let me just sit with you and hang out with you, especially in Vancouver, because most of it's small companies where it's, a, you know, a single guy or girl who runs it. And I always say, like, the company's just going to be you. It's going to manifest who you are. So let's figure out who you are, and then let's build the values around that. Because then a phrase you often hear me say is, because you can't help but be that. And if you can't help but be that, then you'll be authentic. People will relate to that. And yeah, there'll, there'll be some people that go, yeah, I don't need that. But they're not your customers, right? But if you just be who you were meant to be as a human, as a company, as a group of people, then that's your most authentic way of being. It'll be easy. It'll flow out of you whether you like it or not. Um, and it'll come with both and. It'll come with a bunch of goods and it'll come with a bunch of challenges too. Mm -hmm. Well, Ben Smith, I am very happy to know you and who Vice you versa. are. Yeah, you're, you're a rare human and um, I'm very grateful to call you a friend. Well, thanks for having me in this yes. COVID uh <laughs> COVID time and getting me out of my house. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we got masks and we're distancing just in case anyone's getting all weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're good. We're safe in here in the studio. Uh, thank you for your time always. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.